Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about working with professionals to show them how to use the tools to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. We're really going to have a great time today because we're going to be talking about how to really get your business culture to work. Um, And we're talking about that from the perspective of if you are a manager, an employee, a team member, a volunteer, all of those various things, because it does all tie together. So please join me in welcoming my guest today, Gerald Leonard. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. You know, this really is very interesting. And before we jump into it, though, I want to tell folks just a little bit about you. Okay. Gerald J. Leonard is the author of Culture is the Base, Seven Principles for Developing a Culture that Works and is currently the president and CEO of Principles of Execution, a strategic project portfolio management and culture change consulting practice based in the Metro Washington, D.C. area. He attended Central State University in Ohio, where he received his bachelor in music degree and later earned a master's in music for classical bass from the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. After graduation, Gerald moved to New York City, where he worked as a professional bassist and studied with the late David Walters, distinguished professor of double bass, both at Juilliard and Manhattan schools of music. During the last 20 plus years, Gerald has worked as an IT project management consultant and earned his PFMP, PMP, MCSE, MCTS, CQIA, COBIT Foundation, and ITIL Foundation certifications. He has also acquired certifications in project management and business intelligence from the University of California, Berkeley, Theory of Constraints, Portfolio Management, Textbook Expert, Technical, holy cow, you've just got so much, it just gets my tongue tied. So Theory of Constraints, Portfolio Management, Technical Expert from the Goldratt Institute, Hoshin Conry with Karen Roberts, as well as an Executive Leadership Certification from Cornell University. In his leisure time, which I'm not exactly sure when that is, Gerald loves to play golf and travel. So again, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I love it. You know, and, and I love that you have taken your passion, your true passion for music, and translated that into the business environment. Because there are, you know, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm a band geek. Oh, okay. You know, I'm a band geek yep. and, and a choir geek and, you know, all those various things. And it really is something that does translate extremely well to the business environment. But I think we forget about that so many times. So let's just yes, really does. start. Why did you decide that this was a good transition to go from being a professional musician? And I know you still do that on the side on occasion. But right. that professional musician into a consultant. Okay. So um, as you said, you know, I'd studied with David Walter in, uh, at uh, Juilliard and Madison School of Music after I finished my master's. Uh, and that was where I had uh, moved to New York and had actually took an audition to move for an orchestra mm-hmm. um, that I didn't want to move to that city. I actually won the job and I didn't want to move to that city. So I turned a job down and stayed in Manhattan, mm-hmm. um, worked as a musician, but also got involved with the church that I was a part of and ended up going into the ministry and still playing professionally. 
Uh, I did that for about six or seven years, got married, had two kids, and started feeling the bug to really get back out and play professionally. Mm -hmm. And in that process, I realized, you know, I don't want to go on the road and be one of those musicians who's always away from home. Because that's not how I grew up. Mm -hmm. My dad, my mom and dad were always there. And I felt I owed that to my children as well. Mm -hmm. And so um, through that process, I decided, well, you know, I can keep trying to make a living this way. But I also got to learn more about computers at the time where if you could spell IT, Mm-hmm. You could get into the computer field. Right. That was where, you know, that was just back in the day. Mm-hmm. But I had also developed all these leadership skills from being in the ministry and leading people and working with different organizations and traveling and, and learning leadership. And so I plunged into the world of IT. Mm-hmm. And I realized soon that the thing that that I had a talent for was organizing chaos. And mm-hmm. it was just something that became second nature. Right. And I wasn't the typical musician that just kind of, you know, hung out and played here and there. I was very purposeful about the, when I was in music that I wanted to do this in a way that I could make a living. It was mm-hmm. a business, and I approached it that way. So I was very organized. So, long story short, here I saw that going back to school to get a PhD in music or get a PhD or or another master's degree in IT really wasn't the time, and I didn't have the money for that. Mm-hmm. But I could actually go and get certifications. And companies started looking at the certifications and your experience right. almost with the same weight as if you had a master's from a major prestigious university mm-hmm. because you had the education and you had the experience. So hence where all the certifications came from. And there's probably certifications I didn't even list on there because <laughs> I just realized how important that was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've taken the, um, the Gallup poll survey for strength finders. Mm-hmm. And my number one strength was a learner, which I found out. Mm-hmm. And and it just make it kind of spells out where I'm at in life. Uh, I'm a lifelong learner. I love mm-hmm. reading. I love learning. I love taking courses, and I love growing. And so what happened is, throughout this whole time, I'm a, as I'm working as a consultant, I'm still playing professionally. Mm-hmm. So I go into companies, um, large pharmaceutical firms, large government agencies, um, different types of companies, and I started noticing when projects work really well. And when a project didn't work mm-hmm. and also playing, I would play with a group and, hey, that was a great concert. And I started noticing that there were similarities in certain things that were happening when you had a great project. Also, when you had a great concert mm-hmm. and also when you had a concert where it was like, oh, it was OK, but it really didn't. It wasn't over the top. It wasn't mm-hmm. a 10. It wasn't, you know, just wasn't there. But it, the music sounds professional, mm-hmm. but it wasn't it didn't jive, if you right. will. <laughs> what I found out was that the principles that I list in my book are really the keys that tie both of those worlds together. Mm-hmm. Because each one has a vision of where they want to go. The next thing, they, they all have some type of set of principles or values. But then here's one of the key things is that they have to create some type of buy-in mm-hmm. from everyone, whether it's a project team, and they have to buy in, but buy-in has to be a team sport. It can't mm-hmm. be you have one or two people buying in, just like in a band. You can't have one or two people buying in. The entire band has to buy in right. and jail. Mm-hmm. And then you have stories. You have things. How do we get here? Where do we go from here? And, and, and where are we going? And so you have stories of, of different events that happen. So people who come in to the group 
they can relate. You can tell them about, oh, remember that time we did this? Or remember that concert where the conductor did this? And so you end up with these legends of stories that explains the culture. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you end up with, hey, what are some of the best practices, the environment? And then you're executing on, on these principles. And I started seeing really clearly those similarities between businesses, large organizations, and great music ensembles, whether it was classical, jazz, pop, R&B, it all, the, those principles all stood out in each of those environments. Right. You know, and, and I love the analogy of, you know, a symphony, an orchestra, you know, a, 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 even if it's just, you know, a quartet or something, how they right. really do have to, to tie together because we've all seen and heard performances where you've got one person who is off. Maybe they're too loud. Maybe right. they're behind. Maybe they're ahead. Maybe they're out of tune. You know, all of those various things. And then it really does transition to people. You know, you have someone who doesn't understand the the goals of a project. Yes. Who is ahead, who is behind, um, you know, who isn't a team player. You know, how many times have we seen that? <clears throat> Lots. Right. Exactly. And, you know, and... and and then it also, you know, it, it is all tied together by that conductor, uh, you know, and, and, and whether it's, you know, the, 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 the first chair flute or an actual conductor or, you know, first violin or, you know, um, you know, all those various things, it does take a very strong leader. And I think that's one thing that, that people tend to, you know, sometimes forget is they think, well, hey, we can do this. But if there's nobody who's guiding the process, it right. really does just sound like a whole bunch of instruments playing willy-nilly. Exactly, exactly. And that happens in corporations, and you can feel that when you walk into a store mm -hmm. or you walk into an organization. Uh, think about some of the, your favorite places to shop or think about some of your, your, your favorite places to go. Um, you walk in, I mean, think about Disney World, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's like the happiest place on earth. Why? Because everyone is totally bought into the to playing their role, to right. playing their character. Um, I mean, it's 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 amazing just how how they how they get everyone to buy in. Mm -hmm. But from the top, they set a vision of when people walk in the door, you're on and you're at work. You're not at work. You're on stage. Mm -hmm. You you you're you're a cast member. And right. even the way they even the way they name their their teams. And, and so you never see anyone out of character when you're at Disney World mm -hmm. or you walk into Nordstrom and, you know, you, you, you bought something and you're going to bring it back, but you don't have the receipt. Well, they have a policy that says, regardless if you have a receipt or not or how long you've had it, if you purchased it from a Nordstrom, we will take it back. Right. We're going to make sure you're a happy customer. That permeates throughout the entire organization. And regardless of what they charge on their for their, their merchandise the culture permeates and people are, are are engaged and they want to come and experience that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's so important. And especially with bands, I mean, even with bands, you can have a group where of musicians where they're playing together and they're playing the notes in tune and perfect. Mm -hmm. But let's imagine that there's an emotional tug between a couple of the players. Mm -hmm. They're not getting along. You right. can hear it because the music is not going to it's not going to jive. It's not going to. It's not going to connect. Mm -hmm. But it's also amazing that you could have musicians, and I've experienced this playing different shows where we've never met. We come together. We have rehearsals. We're all from different cultures, um, different races, different backgrounds. 
but because we have a vision for where the music is going, within a very short period of time, we're united, we're mm-hmm. bonded, but there's also an emotional connection, mm-hmm. and that friendship tends to last even after the concert. And so there's a magic that happens in music when you end up creating that buy-in as a team sport, and it really becomes that. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're so right. It you know it, it is about having that buy-in, you know, and and because not everybody's perfect. Not everybody you know in in is going to have the same level of skill, the same level of right. knowledge, you know, right. all of those various things. And it, you know, and it doesn't matter you know if if it's you know, uh, and uh, you know music as you were saying or. Right. A volunteer group, your work group, uh, you know, all those various things. But when we all know those and and kind of accept that, then that also helps. You know, you know, hey, you know, I, I need to, to help a little bit over there because they, you know, they, they're sliding a little bit. You know, exactly. Or they can just take it and run with it because I know that they're so skilled at it. You know, and, and right. again, that ties together with music. You know, you've got, and, and especially a big you know, symphony or an orchestra, because you have some of the, the smaller groups that need to practice more. Uh, right. You know, maybe it's that you've got to get the woodwinds together or, right. um, you know, all of those things. And and then you've got some that are just like, hey, they've got it. You know, there there's no need to over practice this because then, of course, right. you could have problems. And so, again, that's where having that good manager who truly understands everything really helps. Right. It's basically he knows when to hold him and knows when to fold him, right? Right. Because right. he knows exactly how much pressure to put on him, but also when to let up and let them go ahead and leave the show because he's brought them in because they have these technical skills, whether business skills or musical skills. Right. So let's talk about what makes a good manager, you know, whether it's a team manager, a CEO, you know, whatever. What are some of the skills that that person really has to have? Well, I'm going to go back to those first three principles. Okay. And the first one is vision. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a vision is that it is the concept of, you know, what's the big audacious goal? Okay. And the vision needs to be a, a, a goal that really challenges people to bring their best to work or to an organization. Mm-hmm. You know, many times as, as leaders, we tend to want to play in some ways safe. Right. And then also we can want to play small just to do keep you know we got to move things along we have our goals we have our budgets and we want to um, meet those mm-hmm. but we don't want to put goals out there that are going to really push and challenge the organization because it doesn't look good if we don't meet our goal right it's, it might but, cost you your job exactly but most great organizations have audacious goals mm-hmm. they have you know what what Jim Collins would call the BHAG the the, right. the big the audacious big, goal. Hairy, hairy. Audacious goal. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. And and so having a vision that is compelling, that's bigger than you, that people will look at and go, I want to be a part of that team. Mm-hmm. So I think being able to um, develop that vision, being able to communicate that vision, and being able to um, permeate and, 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 and live that vision out, that people see it in you. They mm-hmm. see you and they see that this is not just um, leadership talk, or this is not just management talk, you really believe that this is where we're going to go, and that we're, you really believe it, and they catch that belief. It's like John Maxwell would say, people believe the leader before they believe the vision. Right. You know, and, and it really does take the right type of person to be a leader. You know, and, right. and I'm, I'm looking at your book, and you've got 11 mistakes that leaders make. 
You know, right. and, and some of them are, and it's funny because when when I read them and when we talk about them, it's kind of like a duh. But at the same point, we've all experienced it, whether it's yeah. that, that we've been that person making those mistakes right. or we've been part of a team where they have made those mistakes. And, you know, and, and some of those are things like, you know, getting your staff's input, but then not following through. Oh, right. you know, how many times did that happen to us? You know, exactly. Because, and, and it'll happen to your team a couple of times and then they stop giving input. You know, they're they're just going to say, fine, whatever you want, you know, or worse. Right, because you violated their trust. Right, right. You know, it, or if you criticize it, you know, you know, well, that's a stupid idea. I mean, I've actually had bosses tell me that before. You know, that won't wow. work. You know, all those various things. And again, that is where it takes a good leader with good communication skills. Maybe yep. it was a stupid idea. Maybe it wouldn't work. But there's certainly other ways to, to say that that wouldn't right. make me think, well, I'm never going to raise my hand again. Exactly, exactly. And what happens when, when when those kinds of things happen, you basically take some of your brightest and best people and you put them in a corner and you quiet them down. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so now the, they and they may have they may be the person that has the idea they may have a million dollar or a billion dollar idea, mm-hmm. but because the the leader has insulted them or made them feel small, they now are not willing to put themselves out there and share mm-hmm. and and have this you know created this environment where they feel free to share these unique ideas and things that are outside the box um, or outside the circle or whatever you want to call it that are different that are different than how most people would think. But that's why. That's where the breakthrough comes. Mm-hmm. It's right. when you have someone who thinks differently than you do. And if, and if as a leader, you have some people who are all thinking like you, you got the wrong team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really it's, have the wrong it's that team. old saying, you know, if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and of course, if you treat one person <laughs> poorly, then the other team members are going to, to think twice before they step up, too. You know, they right. don't want to be the person called out next time. Um, you know, and, and then you do have kind of the opposite. And, and you didn't really mention this, so I'm just going to make this my 12th rule, is playing okay. favorites. Yes. Oh, you know, that's... Yes. And, and granted, there are definitely times where, where it is appropriate. You know, maybe, you know, back to the, the analogy of a symphony or an orchestra, the first violin is the favorite. That's but that's part of why they're, I mean, that's that's right. whole part of that process. But if you're playing favorites in a way that is unfair, you know, so maybe it is that you know, even if there's the appearance of it being unfair, that is is a definite problem. And, and I think we've probably all been team members where we have seen that happen, you know, where where Bob or Sue can do no wrong. Right. Any suggestion they made is gold. You know, they get special treatment. You know, I have to stay and work late, but they don't have to. All of those various things. And so I think that is something that, that managers absolutely have to always watch is to not play favorites. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you're thinking about what are some of those other skills <coughs> that, that, that you have to have besides being able to really cast that vision. And the next one I think as I, you know, have as a principle, which is values. Mm-hmm. And the way I look at values are they are governing principles that will direct or govern your behavior mm-hmm. and that right. great companies and great leaders have strong values but they use those values that they've developed or that they've crafted that then they get everyone to again buy into mm-hmm. but they then when they make a decision or they have things that they need to take care of 
they pull out their list of values and say, okay, now based on this decision, does it align with our values? Right. I can't tell you how many companies I've walked into, and I'm talking brand name companies, where there may be a department where um, you have a leader that has some values and you have the company values, but they have their own little, each, you know, each department is a little bit unique. Yeah. And but you may have a leader that says, well, I know that's the, what the company's values are, but we're going to do it this way. Yeah, I have my own agenda. I have my own agenda. And, and right there, you've really created an environment where people now are not going to trust. Mm -hmm. They're not going to, because, you know, you're stating, here's what, you know, and when you go say publicly, you say to your other leadership team and other members, hey, here's where we're going, here's our values. But yet, when you turn around and, do, and live a different way or do something else... And you make decisions based on other things outside of those values. It really bring it really hurts the organization. And I think one, I think one of the skills is for a leader to be able to identify the right values, but then to live those values, but also to persuade, mm -hmm. not to not to force, right. but to encourage and persuade others to the point where they want to live those values. That's a different skill set. Mm -hmm. And it's really the the skill of influence, right? You know, as a, it might not match their values, or there might be right. a miscommunication of it. You know, they're like, "Well, <laughs> we thought that the most important thing was to make money." Well, okay, right. yes, the company has to make money, but there's also a lot of other things that that tie into it. You know, maybe they they sacrifice some some money because they're they're doing nonprofit work. Or you know, making donations, you know, all these various things. You're like the, the company. Oh gosh, and I'm drawing a blank on it. Where, when you buy a pair of shoes, they donate a pair of shoes to um, children in in third world countries. That costs them money, but right. for them, it's the right thing to do. Well, I think it's you know, and, and that's it. Yes, it is. And and they are so clear on that that yes, it does cost us money, but it's the right thing to do. Right, Tony Heiss, who's the leader, the CEO of Zappos, that was eventually purchased by Amazon, Jeff mm -hmm. Bezos. I mean, that's one of the reasons Jeff Bezos purchased uh, Zappos was because of their culture, mm -hmm. because of the unique culture that they brought to the table. And uh, you know, I read through the book that Tony wrote about that was called Happiness. Mm -hmm. And the thing that he said is when they came up with that deal, Jeff Bezos told Tony Heiss, you know, we want you to keep your culture. We want you guys. You know, we're going to give you that leverage to keep working and doing what you've been doing because, right. you know, it's so special and we don't want to, we don't want to damage that. We don't want to change that. And again, it was a respect of, hey, he saw that Tony Heist was living that way and he had created an environment where the employees wanted to be that way. And, and really, when you walk in that door, you are judged based on those values and you're, whether you have a skill set to do the job or not. If you don't believe in the values, you will not get hired at Zappos. Right. You know, or you might get hired, but you're not going to go very far, and you might right. not be there very long. It'll, it'll be a bad fit. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. You know, and, and like I said, you know, one of the skills is influence. Because you know, to create, to create buy-in as a team, you really do have to have influence, especially when you start working at a level where um, the majority of the people do not report to you directly. Mm -hmm. And when you're playing in the role of a project program or portfolio manager, you may have a staff that may say one or two people that report to you, mm -hmm. but if you're leading a team of whether it's four or five or a hundred, the majority of those are, are reporting to line managers. They do not have to report to you because of, of worrying about their paycheck. Right. 
And so the only way you can move those projects along and really make things happen is, okay, so how do I influence them? Mm-hmm. And initially, when you you come in to influence them, you're going to come in and to influence them based on maybe your title or your position that you've been given that role. Right. But after a week, that goes away. Mm-hmm. Now people want to see, well, what are you going to use to influence us? And what I've seen is if you bring in, you know, one, expert knowledge that you know your stuff, you know you know the process, you know the techniques, you know all the different things, and coaching where you're saying, hey, there's a lot that you guys know that I don't know, but I can help us shape this together and us work together. Mm-hmm. Then they realize that, you know, you're coming in and you're leading us, but you're also admitting that you're, you're here learning and working with us. You're now becoming one of us. We're going to allow you to influence us. Mm-hmm. And right. so influence is something that's given, not something that you take. Mm-hmm. Well, and then along those same lines, respect is also earned. You yes. Know, and, and there is there's a little degree of respect that comes with, you know, that person having that title, that knowledge, that education, all those various things. But that's that's a very minuscule part. And it's very tenuous. You yes. know, and, and, and I think that's one of the things sometimes that that, you know, many managers or, you know, business owners, leaders forget is all of this is very tenuous, you know, right. and 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 it can go away in a flash and it is next to impossible to get it back. Exactly. Exactly. You know, an example would be, you know, uh, say Elon Musk. I mean, you know, he does fabulous things. But what if, you know, in his private life, say, well, actually, let me do a different example. Athletes. You know, you've got this great athlete that, you know, is the superstar player, you know, whatever sport it is. And then he gets arrested for DUI or drugs or something like that. Exactly. it, It doesn't matter that he turns his life around that. You know, he's, he pays the penalty, he does whatever. That little thing there, that, that loss of that trust is right. gone. You know, and, and, that'll it, be, and that'll be there for the rest of his career. Right, right. And it's, you know, it's very difficult to win people back when they have changed their mind because you've always got the yabbits. I, that's what I call them, the yabbits. They're going to say, well, yes, but. <laughs> um, you know, and, and remember when, and, and of course we see that with politicians all the time. Oh, yeah. As we're talking about this, we've got a special election down here in Georgia for a, a vacant Senate seat. Right. And, you know, they're using, you know, good or bad, they're using examples for the, the candidates that are years and years old. Right. You know, this they made this decision back in, as my father would say, ought six, um, <laughs> you know, which which I think is zero six. So, so right. you know, but, um, but yeah, they're using things like that to, to try and sway you. you know, and a lot changes. A lot changes even over the course of a year, let alone multiple years. But, right. you know, those things still come back and haunt you. And I think that's one thing that, that people, you know, they, they need to keep in mind. And, you know, I talk with a lot of folks about social media and I tell them, Yes, it is very important to be authentic, but you always have to remember that if you're the person that's posting uh, nastiness about politics, if you pick on my sports team, or you know, if, right. if I know that that you know you're one of those people that goes to your son's soccer games and yells at everybody, it really doesn't matter to me, you know, the anything else. I look at that and I'm like, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And nowadays. When you're looking for a position or a role or, you know, to be a, uh, on a contract, um, people are going to check you out online. They're going to Google you. Right. And they're going to see what comes up. Mm-hmm. And they're going to see not only what you say in your professional network, 
but they're going to look and see what you're doing on your social network. Yes. And if the two lives do not match, then that makes it really difficult for for people today to 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 get onboarded onto some great opportunities because they've kind of created an environment where their personal and professional lives don't match. Right. You know, and, and it's very difficult in this day and age of every single person having a phone on their camera. Um, you know, how many times have we seen that bite somebody? Exactly. Every day, you know, every single day. And you know, so it, it makes it hard because it means that if you are a leader and wanting to be a leader, and again, whether it's, you know, your business, your volunteer life, whatever, you just have to always, always, always keep that in mind. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. So we're talking about your book, Culture is the Base. And it's the, um, it's funny, you know, I, I fish and so I keep wanting to say bass. Um, <laughs> culture is the base, seven principles for developing a culture that works. And, you know, and, and, and I love these principles. So talk some more about a couple more of the principles. Yeah. So, so that third principle, and again, I, I, and I really believe this is one of the, one of the cornerstone principles. I think values and buy-in are two of the cornerstone principles. And, and the idea is that, um, you know, Jim Collins talks about uh, getting the right people on the bus. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you can get the right people on the bus. You can get the right people in the right seats on the bus. Mm-hmm. But if internally they do not want to be on the bus, you're going to have a problem. Right. And you think about, you know, think about uh, professional sports. Um, and I think about, you know, my, my favorite sport to watch and I watch it in season and out of season. I mean, I literally watch NFL Network like now. And I'll, uh-huh. watch, the, I'll watch the combine. I'll watch the, the day in the life of different players. Mm-hmm. And I'll watch, you know, games from last year. So I'm, I'm a big football nut. But, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in the Maryland area. And I've been living here now 16, 17 years. So I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but yet, you know, I look at the Super Bowl and there's been one team that's been dominating the Super Bowl for the last, you know, decade or so. And that's the New England Patriots. Right. It's not my Denver Broncos. <laughs> I know. I mean, they got there and, my, and the Baltimore Ravens got there, but the Patriots just seem to keep figuring out a way to go back. Right. And you think about it's like, okay, why is that? Is it just one person? No, it's not. And, and, and in fact, you know, they have key players that get hurt, mm-hmm. but they figured out a way to get, as, as Bill Belichick would say, do your job. Everyone does their job. Mm-hmm. Everyone who comes there, they buy into that philosophy. Right. And, you know, and, and, and we see that all the time with you have to be able to fill those holes. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and it drives me nuts because I'm a sports fan also. I do tend to watch more college than, than professional. But, you know, whatever the sport is, it, you know, obviously, you know, ex- Team sport is what we're talking about. Exactly. But if you lose a key player, quarterback, pitcher, um, you know, wide receiver, you know, all of those various things, they they might have been extremely important. But you absolutely have to be able to fill that hole. And that, you know, if, if they go down injured. And that's where we see people make mistakes. And, and you see that in companies, too, where yes. they've got their best sales guy. Well, you know what? The best sales guy might get sick. He might quit. You know, she might decide she doesn't want to do sales anymore. You know, all these right. various things. And so you had better be able to fill those holes and fill them very quickly. Well, not only just fills them, but if you bring somebody in who doesn't have the same level of talent that the person who left, 
how do you then raise up or take advantage of the other talents that are in the room to get them to complement each other in a way that you're still, you know, again, one of the best teams. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so that, and maybe, that's, go ahead. Uh, maybe it is that you lose your top salesperson. Well, then maybe marketing has to really step up to do different materials that match the skills of the salespeople you still have. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the right point. Because then you're looking at, because the outside environment is constantly changing. Your team has changed. The talent level has changed. So as the leader, you definitely have to constantly not only take a, uh, the measurement of your current team, their talent, you have to look at the outside forces, you have to look at your competition and, and, and figure out what do we have to do this week to position ourselves in a way to win this game? Or what do we have to do this quarter to win in the market? Or what do we have to do, you know, our, what are, we, we just have to replace the bass player, we have to replace the trumpet player, we have to replace the drummer, and you know, we got to bring somebody in. How do we how do we compensate for that so that no one is the wiser that the, that 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 changes happen and yet they still get a great experience from the performance? Right. And that's you know, a skill. And, and and it is, you know, and 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 it's funny because you have your superstars and right. whether it is sports, whether it's music, whether it's your company. And there are people who only want to deal with those people. You know, they only want to see those people. Well, you know, you should be able to show them, well, you know what? Renee Fleming isn't going to be able to perform today. And we know she is the preeminent soprano. But our understudy is pretty darn good, too. You know, and it's the rest of the cast that you're coming for also. Um, It's funny. And and I don't know why Renee Fleming popped up. Um, I guess my my mother-in-law was a a huge opera fan. Okay. She just thought that the world revolved around the baritone Thomas Hampson. And, you know, and, and we actually took her, you know, to several different uh, places. We took her to San Francisco. We took her to New York um, and we took her to Chicago okay. to, to see him perform. And when we went to see the, the performance in uh, Chicago, he was not the key. It was Renee Fleming. We went to see Thais. And, you know, and, and it was so funny because my mother-in-law said, oh, yeah, that, that soprano is also singing. You know, and, and <laughs> she, she obviously knew who Renee Fleming was. Right, she recognized her, talent. Right. It was that second place person, you know, and, and of course I hate to say that Thomas Sampson would be second place, but Renee really was the, the draw there, Miss Fleming. But, um, you know, and, and I think that's where your know, companies really need to look at that is if you do lose that right. top producer, that top employee, yeah. how are you going to, to be able to, to fix that space? Right, it's like your secession plan. How are you going to constantly um, compensate for when things change in your game? And and it's something that you do have to practice or think about ahead of time. So it's almost like risk management Mm -hmm. is a key key skill where you have to kind of consider, well, what happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? And how are we going to compensate for that? And obviously, you you can only take that so far. And then you have to use your your talent and your gut intuition to, uh, to figure it out from there. But if you've done your study and you've done your analysis, uh, you're going to be a lot more ahead of the game than, than most organizations or most teams or even most bands or orchestras right. in that, mm-hmm. to that, that point. Right. You know, and, and what we're talking about here is managing your resources. Right. And, and, of course, a good manager knows how to manage all those resources, whether it's uh, team members, 
uh, time. I think we always right. forget that, that time is a resource. And then, of course, there's financial. You know, and, and that's where things get real tricky, too. Exactly. Exactly. And, and just in fact, in one of my, in my book, I talk about an, an orchestra situation where funding had been cut and the board wanted to cut back more and they didn't understand. So they brought the musicians in to kind of help them explain that this wasn't just a side job for them, right. that this was a major part of their living and, the, and, and also brought, in, brought them in to, to you know, play for them, but also to share about their education. You know, as you as you heard when you read my profile, you know, my background, I spent four years in undergrad, two years in um, my master's as a musician, and then a, a, another year. So I spent seven years in college studying music to get to that level, to play at a professional level. I mean, most people who are study, getting ready to take their doctorate have put in about seven years worth of study. Right. So it's, yeah. so it's, all, it's very equivalent. And... and, and, and you know, many times, you know, leaders don't consider that and they have to. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and they forget that they have that wealth of knowledge that is there. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and one of the other things that, and we've, you know, we've talked about it several times, is that communication. You know, bad things happen. Right. You know, that's just things happen. You know, you have resources that are cut, you know, and, and there maybe that is financial. Employees want to be told the truth. Right. You know, they don't want to be hemmed and hawed around. They don't want, you know, and all those various things. And, and you know, so, for example, you know, the, the orchestra, you know, they lose part of their funding. So, you know, if, if, you know, the conductor meets with them, the board, all those various things, and they say, okay, here's the bottom line. We just lost X number of dollars. We can cut concerts. We can cut, in, you know, team members, you know, people in the, right. we can cut musicians. Right. You know, and, and then they kind of walk through it. And the cool thing is a lot of times those people will come up with the best solutions. You know, right. they might say, we absolutely cannot cut musicians. You know, we're, we're down to the bone as it is, but let's cut X concert or, you know, all those various things. Because in, in the long run, they want to stay employed. You right. Know? In, in so, fact, I think I talk about that in my right. book with mm-hmm. one example where, you know, instead of, Cutting employees are cutting concerts. They cut down. They cut out a rehearsal. Yes. Yeah. You know, does that mean they still have to rehearse on their own? Sure. Sure. You know, and and but if it's a passion for them, they're okay with that. And it also made the other rehearsals a lot more important and valuable. And I'm sure everyone was a lot more focused, knowing that we don't have four rehearsals to pull this concert off. We only have three. So we have to make sure we come in really knowing our stuff. And, and when we're sitting in our seats and we're rehearsing, um, no one's playing around. Everybody's totally focused because they realize they only have so much time. But how could you get that buy-in? Well, you can get that because you had a decision that was made where everyone had a voice in making that decision. Mm-hmm. Right. And that truly creates buy-in. And of course, we all understand that at some point somebody has to make the decision, right? You know, and and fall on their sword or, or do whatever it is. You know, it's 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 not a democracy. You know, we're not voting on it. More than likely, somebody has to make that ultimate decision. But when we have input and we knew that input was heard, you know, I want to make sure we we talk. You know, we bring that back in because that was one of the the mistakes that managers do. 
then we're not necessarily okay with the decision, but we accept it. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and, and, and when I put the book together, um, one of the things that I did is to figure out, you know, what's really missing in the market around this topic of culture and, you know, my skill set and, and, and what I do around project portfolio management and making changes in major organizations. And so I went and did my research. And one of the places I did a lot of research was just looking at Amazon. Right. And I went to Amazon and I looked at all the books in this topic, in both of those topics, and I looked at the number, instead of reading all the five-star comments, I looked at all the number one and number two comments. Mm -hmm. And I collected them, and then I categorized them as an affinity diagram where you kind of put them into themes. And the things that stood out were, you know, one, a lot of the literature is same old, same old. A lot of the, a lot of the books were too big. It was, right. you know, kind of re repetitive of what other people had already done. Or they were just trying to sell their services. Or it wasn't practical. And mm -hmm. so my goal of writing this book was to create something that, one, was a little bit unique, you know, taking music and business and mm -hmm. tying it together and giving a, 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 a nice metaphor that whether you are a professional musician or an amateur musician or you just love listening to the radio, you could relate to. Right. But that you would find stories, processes, tools, tools, questions, and a way to be able to walk, after each chapter, walk away with something that you could put into practice in your organization and start seeing value right away. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and, and I, again, I love that you use music because even if we have never played an, an, an instrument, we still kind of get right. the basic concept, you know, that there's, there's exactly. people up there that play and then there's somebody who leads them. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, right. you know, and, but, but they are following the same piece of music you know and and they're not you know you don't have one section playing you know Bach and, you, and another section playing Beethoven and then somebody else playing hard rock you know right. and, and that comes back to that shared vision and those those you know you're all on the same page literally right. yes <laughs> there's a reason for that yes yeah so you know we've been talking about lots of of ideas but you know, let's let's kind of narrow it down. So, what three things do you believe are the most important things in effective project management? The most important things um, in project management, the, the things that are that are really critical, are really managing your stakeholders' expectations. Okay. Um, and your stakeholders are, you know, who are the people that once this project is done and delivered, that they're going to be impacted by, whether it's the direct end user whether it's the management team, whether it's the um, the, the citizens. You know, I've, I'm doing a lot of work for a Department of Transportation organization uh, at a state level, and, you know, a lot of the projects are affecting the citizens of that state. Mm -hmm. And so they spend a lot of time focusing on town halls, meetings, um, you know, getting feedback, creating portals where the citizens can go in and put in information about their area and roads, construction, and things that they're looking for because they've realized that um, getting that feedback and getting and allowing the, helping the stakeholders understand that we're listening to you and we're here to make sure we're meeting your expectations is very, very critical. Mm -hmm. I would say secondly, from a project standpoint, one of the key skills is what I would call developing a WBS or work breakdown and okay. think of it from the standpoint of, and I like to do this with my teams using sticky notes. 
So basically, I get away from the computers. We talk mm -hmm. about what's the thing that we're going to try to solve. We get onto, we get a big piece of paper. I give the teams um, different color post-it notes, and we sit around and we talk about, okay, what are all the things that are going to have to go into making this work, based mm -hmm. on what the custom those those stakeholder or customer expectations, and it's a lot of fun because we're we're basically uh, brainstorming, and again, mm -hmm. no idea is a dumb idea or a bad idea, mm -hmm. and as we do that, we begin to feel, realize that we're figuring out all the small parts and pieces that are going to have to be taken care of, whether it's a software package being written, a document being written, a communication being sent, uh, a meeting being held, a training being developed, um, whatever the case may be, we've kind of thought through it. And guess what happens at the end when we put this all together and create a, a schedule? Everyone mm -hmm. says, they don't go and say, well, Gerald, that's your schedule. They go, no, that's our schedule. Because right. they all had a, a, a part in creating it. And again, it goes back to that buy-in is a team sport. Mm -hmm. And by doing that exercise with my teams, whether it's 100 people, 50 people, 10 people, 3 people, whatever that number is, by doing that, I create buy-in so that when we start the project to meet the customer's expectations, everyone knows all the details of what they're doing, but they also know that we've really thought this through and it's everyone's schedule, it's everyone's project. And the last one <coughs> is accountability. Accountability right. on uh, weekly accountability and meetings. Mm -hmm. But the way that that's done is the team holds the team accountable. Mm -hmm. So again, as a project manager, my authority level is influence. Mm -hmm. I have to bring expert authority based on my background, my skills, my, my knowledge, and so on and so forth. But my focus is to influence. But when it comes to accountability, if every week each team member is giving a here's what I'm gonna here's what I did last week, or here's what I did, here's what I'm going to do, here are the challenges that I'm facing, and here's what I'm promising to the team to get done then when they come back the next week, if they haven't done what they need to do, then they have to answer to the team. Right. And in fact, today, in today's world, <coughs> excuse me, because things are moving so fast, one of the big things that's out there is called agile project management. And the idea is being, you know, agility, you know, being quick, nimble, being able to move really fast, because when things happen um, out in the market or in, in an organization, the teams need to be able to quickly adjust and move forward. Mm -hmm. And so with Agile, we actually have what we call a daily stand-up first thing in the morning. And whether you're co-located where you're working together physically or you're working virtually where you're working over the phone, over Skype, or over uh, some technology that you can do video conferencing or web conferencing, you can see and, and you're, you're basically having a conversation on a daily basis about where we are and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And if everyone is engaged, again, because of buy-in, and everyone is holding each other accountable, from a project management standpoint, it makes my job easier because now I'm no longer the bad guy. I'm there helping everyone figure out how do we move the obstacles and get you the help you need and facilitate getting the work done and, and, and moving things on. But it's the team that holds the team accountable. I think if those three things are done, 
whether you have uh, whether you're an expert scheduler or not, or whether you have all the other things about project and you're just kind of figuring it out, if you can make make sure you understand what the stakeholders are looking for, the customers looking for, you can detail out the work and make sure that it's everyone's project because everyone's added input in how to create that, and then hold people accountable to get the work done. Just those three skills are going to take you a long way. Right. You know, and I love the concept of kind of that the, the team get-togethers, you know, right. especially virtual, because I'm a consultant for companies, which means you know I'm, I'm not there. I'm not on site. And it's very difficult sometimes because you don't feel like a team player. You, right. you, know, you don't know what's going on. And, you know, obviously we have to have virtual employees, whether it's that they're working from home or that we have consultants or all of those various things. I mean, you know, that's just that's trending more and more towards that. Exactly. But if if they don't feel like they're part of the team, then you lose that thing that we have talked about over and over again. And that's the buy in. Right. They do their job. They do the minimal amount in many cases that they have to do. Because there's nobody really who's going to hold them accountable, and certainly not a group of people. Exactly, exactly. And in, in, you know, and speaking of being a consultant, because I, I work that way as well. I work on site at times and provide training for companies. I, I do virtual consulting, I virtual coaching, and and even with one organization, it's a state level. We I, I went and worked with them, developed a training program, and trained a thousand project managers across the state. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it took about a month and a half to go across the state and, and, and provide these trainings. But one of the things I know about training is once you go through training, by the time you walk out the door, you've forgotten most of what you just heard. Right, because you just got so much that your brain at some point goes, Whoop. Exactly. And so what I facilitate is a lunch and learn. So I work with my clients and say, okay, now that we've gone through that training, let's set up for about two or three months a, a weekly lunch and learn. During lunchtime, people come in, they can come into a conference room, they bring their lunch, they have questions, and we'll have a list of things that we're going to cover in the beginning. We kind of drive the agenda. Once we go through everything, let's say after three or four weeks, we start then collecting questions. So now the agenda is being flipped to where what we're addressing in the training or discussion is their specific questions of things that they're running into. And within about two to three months, um, those, those meetings are not needed as much anymore because now... We've done the training, so they have the manual and they have the, the information, and they've kind of gotten an overview. Mm-hmm. But now they started working it, and now all of these things, so we go back and do a review of all the material through a lunch and learn, and then they're going to have all these questions and problems and things that come up that they need to address. So then we go through that, and over time, because it's so much information, they need to, you know, the brain needs time to process it. Over time, through those lunch and learns, they start really getting it. And when I've done that with my clients, they've said, hey, listen, you know, our phone calls have dropped. Uh, people are getting, we're seeing fewer errors. People are getting the work done. They, you know, we're seeing people processing things much better because now they've been able to assimilate mm-hmm. information. Right. You know, and, and it is about making them feel like they're part of the team. And exactly. And getting them the information and the resources that they need. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, it, it, it is difficult in this day and age where we don't have people all in one place. And, you know, and, and I love the fact that, that, you know, you talk about meeting virtually and, and having, you know, having all of that. Sometimes it's, it's just a matter of having things written down. And, you know, it's and and, you know, and I'm not talking about making it so process driven that, you know, I, I've worked in companies before where 
you know, you, you had your, your online program where you logged in and you put all of this and you, I did this for 10 minutes and right, right. No, you know, it, it, because we still need that personal touch. I think exactly. that's maybe what I'm getting towards. Right, right. We need some facilitation and some coaching to kind of help us go to the next level or to remember and someone to kind of guide us. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's kind of fast forward this. You know, if okay. we're sitting here a year from now and we're celebrating that we've been using your strategies and your tactics, um, you know, what what will we have achieved and learned and contributed towards? Well, <clears throat> when, you, when you think about taking these seven principles, applying them to your environment, and let's say, you know, your environment might have been um, a little more manual, a little bit more, um, could be chaotic in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say in a year, what I've seen is companies now have a clear understanding of exactly where they're going. Okay. They understand, okay, here's the big picture and where we're going with this system or where we're going with these processes or where we're going with this goal. Now we understand how we make decisions because we have a value-based process to know that Hey, if we're going to make a decision about hiring someone, I can I can put that person up against a set of values and determine mm-hmm. is that the right person. Before it's basically well, you know, we had to interview and Mary liked them and Bob liked them and John liked them. You know, uh, Randy didn't like them as much, but you know we, that's okay. I think I think we had enough people to vote on, and so you're kind of it's very subjective. Even though it still will be subjective, now you have a little bit more hard data to kind of compare them against. Mm-hmm. Um, you have skill sets to know that h- how to help the organization buy in because one of the major change challenges with change management is buy in. You know, um, people know that change is going to happen, mm-hmm. and every day, I mean, we all know that you know, no matter as long as we live, as long as we wake up, things are going to constantly change, right. and we want things to change, but when they do change, we don't like it. Mm-hmm. But I know, if, oh, that's scary. It, it, but that's the, that's the way we are. That's it's a it's the paradox of how we're created. But when when that change is coupled with the concept of buy-in, and you're understanding that I have to I have to roll things out. I have to deliver things in a way that influences mm-hmm. instead of commanding. I have to influence. Then you're going to see an organization to where they're a little bit more acceptable of change. Mm-hmm. Because you're not forcing change down the organization's throat, you're right. actually helping them to adopt, helping them to uh, morph into that change, and helping them to transition into that process. And you're going to see a, a you know a, an organization where they are there there are fewer uh, fire the, the firefighting is going away mm-hmm. because now things are a little bit more predictable and things are are a little bit more stable, and you have an environment that supports. Those the 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 the, the, the uh, vision and the and the values and the things that we've talked about and when it comes to best practices, you know, instead of having manuals that that get created that that are sitting on shelves, people have checklists that they're looking at and they have just enough information to do their job. And so when you look at an organization like that, you're going to have an organization that's running more streamlined, more process oriented, um, more predictable, better data quality better process oriented and, and and people are able to you know really you know feel like hey I can come into work make contribute get some great things done and still have time for my family still have time for the rest of my life and I'm not a, just a slave here to what I'm doing in my in, in this job mm-hmm. and I've literally seen 
these principles transform large organizations from this chaotic state to being a much more of a well-dwell machine. And one of the things I can definitely say is in this in that process is you know when I when I put this together, I did a lot of research uh, looking at uh, business case studies at Harvard University, looking at um, statistics and, and and case studies at MIT with the um, McKinsey Consulting from Ari Bennett Warden. You know, I went to the top echelons. Uh, institutions and looked at their case studies and said, do I have evidence, empirical empirical, uh, peer-reviewed evidence that states that these seven principles really do make a difference and they really do move the needle? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and I think as we're, you know, we've got just a couple minutes here that so we need to wrap up, but okay. I think one of the biggest things people need to remember is that, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned change. It is that all of this has to adapt. You know, I think the exactly. worst things that we can ever hear is, well, this is the way we've always done it. Right. <laughs> That's and, a dead organization. <laughs> oh, you know, and, and I hate that. And, and you know, and, and, and how many times have we been told that? Whether it's, you know, uh, you know this is the, you know, we, in, your, in your kitchen, well, you know, this is the way we've always cooked. Or, you know, your volunteer organization, your, your business, all of those things. The worst things you can say is, this is the way we've always done it. Yes, Yes, because as soon as you say those words, you're heading downhill. Right. Well, Gerald, this really has been absolutely fascinating, and we didn't even get through all seven principles, so that just means we have to have you on again. Well, there you go. Before then, how do people find you online and connect with you? Well, they can find me at my website, which is principlesofexecution.com, and also my book's website, which is developingacultureThatWorks.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter, Gerald J. Leonard. Um, and, you know, reach out to me. I'd be happy to connect with you. And, um, and again, there's a lot of um, free resources. I have a podcast where I interview other experts and some white papers out there. Uh, and I've, I've been doing a weekly video series as well, just taking some of these principles and hopefully providing some nuggets of things that people can walk away with and use in their organizations. And again, the title of your book is Culture is the Base, Seven Principles for Developing a Culture that Works. Thank you. I really appreciate this time. Perfect. Well, I have been having an absolutely delightful time talking with Gerald Leonard, and and we will have to have you on again because I think this is something that we can't talk about enough, Um, you know, because whether you're you're a leader of a volunteer organization, a business leader, or a team member – you know, all of this information is so very important. So, you know, I am Deb Creer. As I've mentioned, I've been talking with Gerald Leonard about his book, The Culture is the Base, Seven Principles of Developing a Culture that Works. And until next week, everyone have a great time. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.